Well, I wanted to speak about that and maybe uh, rejoice a little bit here in the beginning because, you know, there are moments in the church's life when it's not a rejoicing moment. It actually is a moment when we should experience brokenness in our lives. There are moments in the church's life where we should recognize there are, there are things that trouble the heart of God and they trouble, hopefully, the heart of the believers as well. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 5, that's where we'll be studying this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll hear Paul as he addresses this church at Corinth. And it's anything but good news that he's bringing. As a matter of fact, he's already addressed the divisiveness that he's seen within the church. He's seen the different factions and how they're lining up with different personalities. But now as you get into chapter 5, you recognize that the problem runs even deeper than the divisions that he's spoken about earlier. You'll see the immorality that has been tolerated in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the way he addresses this. Beginning in verse 1 of that fifth chapter, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ... Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Paul had looked at a church that he had birthed, a church that he loved, and he had seen the division. He had seen the difficulty that they had experienced. He was getting reports from the things that were going on, and as he recognized what was happening in that church, he wrote to them and he addressed specifically a problem that they had. In chapter 5, he speaks about a sexual sin that is very prominent in their midst. He says, there is sexual immorality among you. That word in and of itself speaks about this general sexual immorality. Corinth was known for sexual immorality. If you were to read the history of Corinth, you would see that they had indulged themselves and indulged the desire of the flesh time and time again. But Paul says, it is there among you. Something is happening in your life as a church, and it is such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. He says, it is something that even the Gentiles themselves would turn away from, and then he names it. He says, that a man has his father's wife. It is an incestual relationship between a man and his father's wife. The father perhaps was divorced or dead at this point. But here he was engaging in this ongoing relationship, even though Leviticus chapter 18 had said that this is incest. And again, not even the Gentiles would have adopted this. I said to you that Corinth was known for its sexual immorality. And the Gentiles of the day... They were known for their promiscuity. 
There was one writer that lived in the 4th century B.C., and he described the basic Gentile attitude toward women. And he said, as he was writing, he said, our, our prostitutes, he said, are there for pleasure, our concubines for the daily care of the body, and our wives, he said, for legitimate children. That was the idea. That was the basic pervading concept of that day, is that anything could go except not even this, not even an incestual relationship that was present within the church. The problem was the sexual sin that was there. And notice again, it's an ongoing relationship. It says that a man has his father's wife. In other words, it was like an ongoing relationship that this man had with his father's wife. It was perhaps cohabitation or just continue. The relationship continued and continued. And Paul said, there is a problem with that. But I want you to see that Paul was not just concerned about the sexual sin itself, but he was concerned about the puffed up pride that the church had. I would say to you that he was even more troubled by the arrogance of the church than he was the sexual sin that was going on. Notice he says in verse 2, And you are puffed up. Puffed up. That you are proud. You are arrogant. Have you ever been referred to as puffed up before? I was down visiting someone in the hospital a few years ago and um, was visiting with actually a, a lady and her son was there. And as I was getting ready to leave, her uh, son said to me, Brother Reggie, would you just, would you step in here? Would, would you step into the bathroom with me? I want to show you something. Now, I'm going to tell you, I was a little nervous, all right? So well, I just if you just step in and I, I, just one thing before you leave and, and everything. So I stepped in and I kept one foot on outside of the threshold of the door and one foot on this side of the door and I was peering in. He said, look in that mirror there. I looked in the mirror and he said, what do you see? Well, you know, for me, a handsome young man. And <laughs> He said, no, look, look. Do, do you notice? Do you notice how puffed up you are? You're just rather puffy. And he began to lecture me on my um, eating habits and my health and other kinds of things. I summarily dismissed him and prayed with him very quickly, and I left. But I'll never being, forget being called puffed up or puffy. Now, let me say to you, when I read this passage, it's not talking about physical puffed upness. Is that a word? It's not talking about physical. What he's saying here is that in your attitude and in your spirit, you are puffed up. You are arrogant. You are prideful. Later on in verse 6, he says, you're actually taking glory in this situation. You're boasting about it. My may, now, maybe they're doing this uh, unintentionally. Perhaps they don't recognize the full uh, scope of this, but 
they are taking glory in this situation. And Paul is heartbroken over it. I, I say to you that I, I believe he's more upset about the church's response to this situation than he is the situation itself. He said because the church, here they are standing for what should be the truth, and yet they're boasting over something that is so egregious, that it is so outlandish, that not even the Gentiles themselves, the non-believers outside of the church, not even they would embrace such a lifestyle. So the problem was sexual sin, but it was puffed up pride and arrogance. You know, we as a church, as God's people, we are called to his testimony, to his purity, and we're called to live lives that are totally different from the world. And even when we stand as a people, we are to stand in a different fashion from what the world does. And yet, so many times, what do we do? We not only embrace the things that are sinful, but we give those sinful practices a pat on the back. And Paul says, this is not what God would intend for his church and for his people. There are all kinds of times that people will act spiritual still. And this church thought they were very spiritual. As a matter of fact, they were bragging about their spirituality, talking about how many gifts they had. Oh, they had it all together. And yet when it came to obedience, they were lacking. Have you noticed that we live in a community or we live in a culture today that is, that is very spiritual? I mean, they really are. They're very spiritual. The culture in which we live is very spiritual. You say, well, now, Brother Reggie, I'm not sure they're spiritual. They don't seem spiritual, son. Listen to the way they speak. Listen to the way the culture addresses God. There is a spirituality that we find. I didn't say it was truth. I said it was spirituality. And there are so many people today that embrace a spirituality without embracing the truth. My heart is so grieved sometimes to be able to see what parades under the guise of spiritual blessing and yet which is total disobedience to the God we serve above. I tell you, there are times. I have to watch it. I have to be very careful. But every now and then, I'll open up my Facebook page. Every now and then. I did it last night because I wanted to see the misery of the LSU fans. I'll just be honest with you. I wanted to see them confess it upon Facebook. So I opened it last night. There are occasions that I open it. But I tell you, my heart is grieved when I see things, when I see relationships that have been compromised and they have been publicly compromised for all of the world to see. And yet in the same, in the same post where that relationship has been compromised, 
there are scriptures attached to that compromise. Does that not trouble you? Is that the way that we have come in our culture that we take the things that we want to justify and those things we want to reason and we place spirituality along with them, we tag all types of scriptures to them and yet there are things that not even this world would accept and we've accepted it within the church of the Lord Jesus. Paul says that you've been spiritual about it, you've been arrogant But notice what he says about the process of dealing with the problem. He says in verse 2, basically, you should have mourned. He said, you've been puffed up and have not rather mourned. That word there speaks to the idea of a deep emotional anguish that we're to have. That they were to have. A deep emotional anguish to mourn. The word was used to describe those who mourn the death of Jesus in Mark chapter 16. Those who had this deep anguish. This deep sorrow for what had happened. That they had seen the Lord himself die. And they, they were concerned. They were mourning over that. Same word that's used here. And Paul says that when we see such sin, instead of being arrogant about it, instead of trying to describe it in spiritual terms, he says we need to mourn. We need to be broken. I'm going to say to you that the church today, the church today could use a good dose of brokenness before God. The church today is one that should be called to mourn the things that are happening, not just outside this church and in our culture, but I'm talking about in the self-proclaimed church of the Lord Jesus Christ to see the sin that is parading. We should mourn. We should find ourselves in intense brokenness for what is happening. And that's what he says here. He says, instead of parading around and being puffed up about it and celebrating it, you should have mourned over it. You should have been broken. And notice the process he says. He says there should have been brokenness, there should have been mourning, but he says there should also have been some type of separation. Verse 2, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Later on in verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, I know those seem like such strong terms that we'd give up somebody to Satan. The idea here is that you will give them over for a season, for a period of time, for them basically, hopefully, prayerfully, to come to their spiritual senses. Paul will pray for Hymenaeus and others later on who has demonstrated such doctrinal infidelity that somehow they will be given over as well and that Satan will work in his own way 
to demonstrate brokenness in their lives so that they might come to that place of repentance in their lives. But basically, in the process, he says you've got to have some type of separation. Now, remember, Jesus even spoke about this, didn't he? About how to deal with a brother or sister who is sinning, who is going on in their own way. Do you, do you remember this? Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus described it something like this. He said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you see someone that's going on in their sin, it's a brother or sister in Christ. Notice this. A brother and sister in Christ that's going on publicly in his or her sin, he says, you ought to go to them. And you ought to talk to them. You see, there ought to be a whole lot more private conversations about God's relationship to individuals in our churches today that God would use us and his people, that he would use us to help others grow in him. And it ought to stay as private as possible. Did you hear me say that? It ought to stay as private as possible. He says, first of all, it ought to start with one person. You ought to be able to go to a brother or sister that you love and they know you love them and you're able to talk to them a little bit. <clears throat> I believe that if we had more private conversations about God's truth and God's work in people's lives today, we wouldn't have quite the public sinfulness that we see demonstrated in our communities today. You see, if we'd begin in the beginning, like Jesus said, and have a conversation with people, I believe it could head off a whole lot of different things in people's lives. Jesus said that you ought to go to them. He said, what? In verse 16, if they will not hear, take with you or one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, if he doesn't hear you, you get a brother or two and you go to them and you talk to them. Whatever happened to Christian brothers and sisters just going and talking about what God is doing, wants to do in another person's life? And then finally, what does he say? Same thing that Paul basically says. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Some of you said, Jesus said that? I mean, that sounds like Paul. Now, Paul is kind of a hardliner, Brother Reggie. I, I could understand Paul saying that. But Jesus? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 18, he says there has to be a separation even in the fellowship itself. He says that we are to deliver that one so that God can work in his life. In verse 9, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such 
a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Notice here he says that you break some fellowship with them. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because how does he say that we should relate to the ones who are outside the church, who are unbelievers? He says we ought to have fellowship with them. Isn't that what he says? Just as Jesus received sinners, so should we be willing. But notice this other comment here. He says, for those who are inside the church, those who are brothers and sisters, those who are part of the family of God, he says, those you ought to mark. Why? Man, there is a wise preacher that was preaching a few weeks ago, right here from this pulpit. Young guy, good-looking guy. He said something to the effect that we should never expect unbelievers to act like believers. But we should expect believers to act like believers, right? That's almost this principle illustrated for us here in this passage. Because what does he say? You go out and you have fellowship with unbelievers because you're in the world and you have to, you have to be in the world because God hasn't released you yet. So you go and you have conversations with them and you have fellowship with them because you should never expect an unbeliever to act like a believer before he's saved. You reach out to them. But he says there's a different standard for those who have come into the fellowship of Christ. There's a different standard for those who have proclaimed themselves to be transformed into the image of God. To those, he says... The church ought to be speaking into their lives. The church ought to be somehow challenging individuals to live lives of purity and holiness instead of simply looking the other way. I will say to you, from what I see in the New Testament, from what I see in the New Testament, something ought to only reach this stage when it is an egregious, ongoing public sin that has stained the witness of Christ. Now, it could be a diversity of sins. Look at the New Testament. It could be sexual immorality, as we're speaking about here. It could be idleness. It could be busybodies. It could be all kinds of sins. But it seems consistent that it is an ongoing, public, unrepentant sin that should be addressed in such a way. Paul later on will tell the Thessalonians, he said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Moreover, he says, if anyone refuses to obey what we say in this letter, note that man and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not look on him as an enemy, but warn him... As a brother, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This idea to associate literally means to mix up. It says, don't mix up with them. Now, why? What's the purpose of this? I mean, you see the problem and you, you can see the process laid out, but what is the purpose? There should be a purpose, right? Right? 
Well, the purpose is so that this individual might come to restoration. Notice again, back in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know, the temptation here is for us to become vindictive and just use these processes in such a way to punish somebody. It is interesting that Paul will come back to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians and he'll actually say to them, you're being a little too strict now. Isn't that the way we usually do? We go from total liberality to such force and consequences. It's hard for us to get things right, isn't it? We err on one side or the other. And he says, we're not doing this out of vindictiveness. You never should. You never should talk to somebody because you really want to get them or punish them or take somebody else to talk to them for that purpose. What you're hoping is that they will come to a restored relationship with Christ. Right? May I say to you again, that's the reason you need friends in your life that fear God more than they fear you. You need some brothers and sisters in Christ that fear God and his work more than they fear you. That they will, be, that they will come to you in that day and that they will speak to you in such a way that you will come to restored relationship with Christ. Restoration, he says. That's what the purpose should be of seeing our brother. There are too many of our brothers and sisters that have gone off away from the Lord, walking in their own paths and their own desires. And our prayer should be that God would use us and others and work in their lives to bring them back. We should be about redemption and restoration as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should also be about deterrence. Notice what he says here in verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, don't you realize that just a little bit of leaven. Now you see what they would do? Sometimes each week, as they would prepare for the next week of baking their bread, they would, they would just hold a little bit of that leaven, just a little bit of that dough out, just a little bit, so that next week they could kind of have a little bit to start with, and they would do that, just constant. But once a year in the life of Israel, they had the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that, and that meant that they were to... I mean, there were no leaven. They were to clean the house. Everything was supposed to be good. They were cleaning it all up and no leaven was to be used. Some people believe that that promoted hygiene. It promoted health, actually, that they would remove all that leaven at some point and reduce the uh, likelihood for infection or sickness or anything like that, that they would remove it all. He says, verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, 
since you truly are unleavened. He says, you want to remove this. You want to... I was reading a guy that was trying to translate these verses in the Greek, from the Greek into English. And uh, he was running kind of late, as some of us did in our translation days. And he went to the King James, and he realized that he could, he could translate it just like King James did. You're, you know, uh, when I was in college, I met with one of my friends one time over at Ole Miss in pharmacy school, and he said, Reggie, what are you all doing in school right now? And I said, well, actually, we're translating the book of Philippians. He said, hadn't somebody else already done that before? I mean, you all really have to. Y'all really have to do that? So, well, we're getting into it. And he's, anyway, this one guy who was translating, he was translating these verses, and he knew if he put down the King James Version that they would recognize the King James Version and all of that. So he just translated the best he could, and he came in with a translation of something like this. A little dab will do. A little dab will do. And, you know, a little dab will. It'll infect the whole of the loaf, of the, of the bread. It'll affect everything. It has its way of working in. And thus, he says, you ought to purge out the old leaven. One of the reasons maybe that we continue to see sin just continue to progress in an unbridled way may be because we as a church never even speak about it anymore. Not about sin or public sin. We simply sweep it under the rug. We may not rejoice in it. We may not glory in it. We may not boast in it. We just neglect it or overlook it. I mean, in these days, you almost have to, don't you? Because if you were to address it in your church, what happens? Well, you just go down to another church. And perhaps that's part of the shame that we should bear as the modern church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that today, we're so concerned about our membership and receiving individuals into our congregation that we've forgotten the very purity of Christ. He says, purge out the old leaven. Why? Because you're a new lump. You are a new loaf of bread. Have you thought about that today? You probably didn't get up this morning and say, man, I feel like a, just a nice loaf of bread today. He says, you're new. You're a new loaf. Because get this, all of us can get caught up in the, in the punishment and the consequences of it. We forget for ourselves that we've experienced redemption. We know what it's like to be restored. Later on, we'll look at this next week again. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But thank God there's verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He said that that's where all of us were. Why would we want to go back to that? Why would we want the church to embrace such an immoral culture that we came from? God has delivered us. He has saved us. He has washed us. He has cleansed us. We are new in Him and we should never 
want to go back to the old. He says, we should purge out the old leaven. Why? Because we are unleavened. Why? Because of Christ, our Passover, the Paschal Lamb himself was sacrificed for us, he says. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'll say to you that as we think of this passage, we think of why that problem must be addressed by Paul and how the process must work itself out. It is certainly, it is certainly for the, in, the empowerment, the work of the church as it goes forth. A deterrence, yes, restoration, but the empowerment of the church. Don't have a whole lot of time to unpack this. I just say to you that as I look in verse 4, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together. In other words, when the church came together, they were to address this. Along with my spirit, which I think here the Holy Spirit of God, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you're doing it through him and in his strength, and in his power. Back in Matthew chapter 18. Remember those verses I read about Jesus and how he said we ought to address the sinning brother or the sinning sister? A lot of times we stop in verse 17 of Matthew 18 and we forget the rest of the verses. If you were to continue to read in that same narrative of where he spoke about the sinning brother, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Oftentimes we disconnect those verses We'll talk about, well, where there are two or three are gathered, there he is also. He's right there in the presence, which is true. Sometimes we'll come in and we'll talk about the authority of binding and loosing. But we'll disconnect it from the context. But if you'll notice, it is in the context of dealing with a sinning brother or sister that you experience the power of Christ you experience the wisdom, but also that you're able to continue to experience the power of Christ in binding and loosing. Or as Paul says, that even when you're gathered, you experience the power of Christ as you address this issue. We wonder why our churches are so anemic today. Perhaps it is because we have not stood for purity and embraced truth and embraced holiness in our lives as a church and as a people. We wonder what has happened to the church of the Lord Jesus here in our country, in our community. We don't seem to see the, the movement in our nation as we once did. The question would be, is it because we've not, we have not addressed the sin that is public, ongoing, unrepentant in our very lives. He's promised us power. It's not about what he's done. Perhaps it is because of how we have compromised. There's the problem, there's the process, there's the purpose. Let me say this to you again this morning.
Maybe you come into this place. And maybe right now, you know, if Paul were to address a letter to the church at Temple, he might even speak to you. Maybe it'd speak to me. And this morning in our lives, there's some things that need to be addressed. There's some sin that needs to be forgiven. There's some sin from which we need to repent. Would you hear God's work in your life today? Would you hear him speak to you right where you are? Because my friends, what he wants to do again is not punish you. Not bring the... He wants to restore you. To his, to the relationship with him and the relationship with his people. Today, would you hear God's call in your life? And maybe today, it's somebody that you've got that you're, you've been praying about. Should I go talk to them? Should I speak to them? Does God want to... Today... As we gather together, may the power of the Lord Jesus be demonstrated in this place as he grants us wisdom and discernment as we stand for purity and as we do what he's called us to do. Would you respond to him this morning as he convicts you and challenges you? May his spirit rest upon this place. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you and we thank you. Lord, for calling the prodigal son home, we thank you. Lord, all of us in this place, every one of us in this place who have been saved we came through the blood of Christ and through that blood alone. There's no works, nothing else that got us here. Father, we're thankful, we're grateful to you. But God, I pray that you would help us to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to help as we encourage purity in our family here in this place. God, challenge us now. Speak to us. Help us to come and respond. Help us this morning to repent of the sins that are going on in our lives. Help us this morning to just come and, Father, fall before our face and mourn for the sin that we know that is public and ongoing and unrepentant in our midst. Father, just help us to address sin this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?